welcome to We're Not Wizards. We are the best, but not wizards. Enjoy the show! Welcome to another episode of We Are Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for July. And it's been a mixture of rain and it's also been a mixture of like lots of sun. So it's either been rainy or it's been sunny, which is fine, which I can kind of deal with. It does mean that I'm having to cut the grass in the garden an awful lot more. So it's kind of kind of terrible kind of that way. I'm kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like first world problems, I guess, because I mean... If this was like, say, a couple of hundred years ago, I wouldn't be worrying about the grass. I'd be just like gratefully getting a little bit of rain and getting a little bit a little bit of sun. You could probably say I'd be out there, I'd potentially be out there kind of trying to find new things. I'd be potentially out there kind of prospecting. Now, I wouldn't be an old prospect, it'd probably be a new prospect. And if you're going to be talking about new prospects, then you have to talk about a board game. And the board game you're going to have to talk about is Coloma, the expansion, New Prospects. And joining me to talk about Coloma, the prospects, the expansion, and the repin, I've got the wonderful, the fantastic, the amazing, very, very busy Johnny Pack. Hey, Johnny. Hey, thanks for having me on. That was a good, good segue <laughs> intro. I hope that was improvised because that was amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm kind of. Yeah. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that I'm good at. Everything else, everything else is going to come crashing to the ground. Like some kind of burning spitfire, basically. Um, the campaign's doing quite well. I mean, we're almost, we're at the, uh, it is the, now I'm going to say the American version because we do have listeners in America. It's June, it's June 13th, but for all you civilized people out there, it's currently the 13th of June. And there's about six days left and you're almost at, well, you're like 600 odd percent kind of funded. So you're almost at the $200,000 mark. So you must be, well, how is Mood in Camp at the moment? It's pretty good. Uh, yeah, just when I was going to bed at the wee hours last night, I was working on some game stuff. I saw that we passed 2,000 backers, which is which is nice because mm-hmm. sometimes, of course, the you know X amount uh, percent on Kickstarter it's, or, or GameFound is little misleading because you don't actually know what the funding goal was and sometimes they're set very low yeah. or whatever else but when you see a lot of backers and you just know that there's actual people that have that thing in, in their cart and they're excited to get it and that that means a lot to me so i'm excited to see that there's two thousand people out there uh, have pledged already and more coming along and that's, that's exciting to me just to, to think about it on all those tables when it comes out now um coloma itself has been has been kicking around kind of for some for some time. In fact, um before we started recording I was kind of it was twenty nineteen and uh so it's now four years ago, which when you think twenty nineteen I always think, well that's just a year ago or something like that. But it's now like four <laughs> years ago, which just goes to show that time goes far kind of far too fast. And I was basically stuck not halfway up a hill, but I was in some kind of um 
kind of hill-like retreat in November, at the end of November, and uh, um, and uh, one of the games that we played was Coloma, and the person I played it with was Mike Delisio, and Mike Delisio, as you know, is uh, he's part of the Dice Tower, and so he said it was one of his kind of uh, one of his favourite games, and. Um, we played it, and I played about with the magnet disc thing and annoyed him <laughs> quite a bit because I kept on kind of spilling all his components. And I think out of three people, I managed to come um, fifth. So, <laughs> so it was a, it was a it was it was a good game, and everybody had a, a kind of a good a good fun time. Um, in terms of the expansion kind of thing, was that? Was that something that was you've been planning for some time, and it was just a case of finding the right time? Because one thing that's obvious in the middle of this is between 20, 2019 and today, there was a little bit of a cough and a cold going about in the pandemic, which I think kind of stopped a lot of kind of like development time and stuff like that. So is that is that what happened? Is that what happened with the expansion, or is the expansion just taking a little time to kind of get out there? Um, it's something I've wanted to do kind of all along. So I, uh, ultimately the game went out of print pretty quickly after it first came out and that's due to uh-huh. pandemic times and things like that. And part, part of it was a sentiment yeah. that Coloma is, uh, especially good in a lot of people's opinion, higher player counts is one of those few like medium heavy mm-hmm. Euro games that plays all the way up to six players naturally. And it doesn't completely bog down at six. And so, um, uh, that said, though, during the pandemic times, there was it wasn't likely that six people were cooped up in the same cabin that often, and so games seem to go solo centric, two player centric, and board games are selling very well, and so it were puzzles and activities and things like that for people that were kind of you know homebound. Um, but Coloma felt like a, a kind of a risky product for them to re-release right away in the midst of all that, and also trying to. Mm-hmm galvanize people to you know get together and play it so they, they kind of sat on it for a little bit and then we kept kind of like getting the temperature on hey is it time to do this is it time to do that and yeah. uh, they finally reached out and said hey you know we, th- we think things are opening up the world's ready for this let's let's bring it back and are you ready for that expansion and all along i've just been kicking ideas around the back of my head just not knowing whether or not um they'd get implemented and so to be honest i you know really started working on the expansion very like early this year as far as actually building wow. prototypes testing it and all that so it's pretty pretty fresh stuff and though that wow. might sound kind of rushed in one sense it's actually not because there's just so many things that i want to do with the game and i also had a kind of a rich source of inspiration coming from its uh predecessor game which was a little you know uh, vanity print run of a game that turned into Coloma eventually which was more complex and uh, I had stripped out some of the mechanisms uh, to make Coloma the streamlined power hour game that it can be. And I was able to Mm -hmm. go back, all right, well, there's a little bit more headroom for complexity. People who know the game are willing to uh, add new stuff into it and not feel totally overwhelmed. Whereas if all this stuff was baked into the core game, onboarding Mm -hmm. would be a little bit trickier. So it gave me more design space and I was like, okay, let me go crazy and see what I can do. And then um, all this time has given me the opportunity to read feedback from BGG and reviewers and people, critics, and see, 
are there some weak spots in Coloma that the expansion can patch in and create some better experiences or reach a wider audience? Um, and notably, the, the booming and busting mechanism is so core to the game, but some people were turned off by yeah. the fact they would say, oh, I busted 12 out of 15 turns in the game and there's no coming back yeah. from that. Led me to think, what could we do to like maybe put a new spin on that? And that's um, one of the main factors of the, the expansion is how it addresses the boom bust mechanism. So did you have, it sounds to me that you had, <clears throat> it was almost like you had, uh, you'd put everything together into Coloma, but you like most kind of game designs is that, Game design to me seems to revolve around taking a hundred ideas, putting them all together, and then kind of cutting away seventy-eight of those ideas <laughs> and running with the twenty or so that you've got left. And so, am I right in saying that you, you kind of had stuff on the side already that you'd probably been playtesting a little bit, and then bringing it in wasn't as difficult as maybe kind of starting completely from scratch. Because one of the things I find in expansions is games get really, really... Well, expansions come two ways. You either get them as part of a of a bigger Kickstarter campaign, and mm-hmm. they're not necessarily expansions. They are one of the 78 pieces that were just cut <laughs> off to call them expansions. Or you get like the situation where yourself, where people go, this game's great, I really, really like this game. It's lots of fun. It'd be nice if we could have some extra stuff to it. And you're kind of almost starting from scratch saying, well, what can we add kind of expansion wise? But it sounds to me like you kind of, you kind of had that, kind of had that kind of there. Was it, um, was it nice to be kind of working on something that you knew how it worked, how it balanced out and everything like that? And you weren't having to figure things out to kind of make it work. Yeah, yeah, I, I do enjoy that. Like, I understand the economy of Coloma pretty well. So there's certain elements, like the gold economy, is, and it's like when the, it's not the most stable thing. And if there's a lot of cards that, or effects that pull gold out of the river, all of a sudden that crashes and ends up to a lot of edge cases and stuff. So I know it's like, all right, the gold is very delicate. These other economies mm-hmm. are a little bit more robust. So getting in there and figuring that stuff out was, you know, I've kind of got all my baseline maths. Um, pre-sorted and as far as um, mm-hmm. the content goes some of the stuff that um, is in there it's, it is there's some additive stuff where there's new stuff but there's a lot of stuff that uh, swaps out things wholesale and that uh, lent me a lot of design space like notably the biggest one would be that you take all of the player cards from the core game you just leave them in the box and you replace mm-hmm. them completely with a brand new deck of cards that each player gets and there's wow. more cards and the cards are, uh, they offer more variety. And so the biggest thing is that the icons on the cards, the cards are, the effects are triggered by icons instead of site positions. So before it was like, when I go to site four and if I bust, then I can use this particular card. Now it's more matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go to the, whenever I move on the map, there's a little map icon, I get to do this action. So whether I do that through a barrel or through a different like backdoor method, the cards can still fire off. So this creates a lot more interesting chain combos and flexibility that the cards didn't have. And then there's some other uh, mechanisms which I kind of pulled back in that got cut, which was there was a little bit more worker placement in the original game, which was as you build cards out in front of you, some of those cards would have worker placement spots in order to do like a powerful action. So it's like, okay, I can mm-hmm. go put the dudes in the shootout and then I can put dudes on hotels if you're playing with that module. 
and then you'd additionally be able to put some dudes on the what's now these little outhouse cards and you go in the outhouse and the guy's going to stay there for reasons for the rest of the round and then let you do yeah. this really powerful action and so that's been kind of baked into it and um another mechanism that i kind of pulled from the predecessor game was that there was cards that would uh get better over the course of time so you you build the card and you put something on it and then if you wait yeah. longer you wait they get more powerful and now uh similarly but different you have a little marker on some cards that if you trigger the card now it's fine it gives you something but if you bust it advances to the right and if you bust again it advances some more and then if you cash yeah. it out at that point it has a bigger payout so it kind of creates this insurance policy that the longer you wait for these certain cards the more they pay out and that creates that um reverse incentive that hey if i want my cards to all let's say mature then it's okay if i bust a couple times on the wheel because when i finally do cash in i'm gonna have this big epic comeback move and so that's that's kind of how the cards go so in a sense it's like there's not more cards where they now there's 40 something cards to play with it's like no there's yeah. 20 cards instead of the 16 i think in the original and uh yeah. and they're just slightly more complex and they do more interesting stuff but it's not like an overwhelming amount of new content or diluted decks, which sometimes happens with expansions. Yeah, that is one of the things you want to avoid with an expansion, because I know some people, they clamor out for an expansion, and then when they get one, they're like, well, this completely changes the game beyond what I enjoyed about the original game, and it kind of mm -hmm. sometimes kind of puts it off, or it adds kind of levels of um, complexity that puts people off from setting it up with the expansions. I know some of the some games I've seen with expansions look extremely daunting, like um, Anachrony. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen that kind of set up with all the different kind of expansions and stuff like that. But it's kind of, it, it kind of like looks like a Christmas feast or a Thanksgiving <laughs> feast when you see it on the table, and it's just like I'm gonna need I'm gonna need two plates. Yeah. To kind of even begin to kind of, kind of, kind of tackle this kind of entire entire kind of situation, um, stripping it back just a little bit. What, in terms of your approach to your design in general, are you? How how do you approach it? Are you someone that kind of like looks at a theme, and then says, "Well, mechanically, how can we gamify that?" Or are you the type of person that has kind of you have an idea for a mechanic and you'll have like a, a kind of a ring binder at the side of the bed that you wake up sleepily at three o'clock in the morning and start kind of jotting down ideas in the hope that maybe you can involve it as some kind of game. What's your kind of your process, would you say, Johnny? So um, I like to think that I work on thematically informed designs, and but I am a mechanics first designer and I I would argue that games games are mechanics first because you can have mechanics with no theme and it's still a game, but you can't really just have a theme mm. and no mechanics and get a game out of it. So in a sense, I think there is there is going to be a little bit of weight and burden that the mechanics uh, kind of need to set the bedrock of everything else that happens after that, even for you know story-driven games and things like that. So um, what I try to do is come up with a novel mechanism but not just one that's like hey here's a new drafting mechanism cool mm -hmm. like that's not quite enough for me and then it's like okay how about another mechanism that's kind of novel in some way all right and then maybe like mm -hmm. a third supporting mechanism and, and once i get 
a few mechanisms I think are going to interlock with each other and kind of create interesting feedback loops. I think that that's enough to um, be compelling because in, in this day and age, it's I think it's actually really hard to just come up with like a pure single mechanism and just let a game stand on that. Like, okay, here's deck building dominion. That's yes. just great deck building. You buy cards and you do stuff and you get victory points and you're done. Now it's like, you get the Arnax and the Dunes and the Endless Winters, all these games where it's like, it's deck building and it's worker placement and they've all got yeah. a certain spin on them, right? And so it's like that hybridization is where it becomes interesting. And then uh, thematically, I don't like to go very far on a design until I have a theme that um, I find compelling, inspiring, and preferably something that's publishable. So mm-hmm. in that case, uh, I won't really go too far as because I actually think it's harder to come back and just say, hey, let's put a skin on this thing now that it's so complex. Oh, this track doesn't make sense with that theme. Oh, well, let's just call it something. Yeah. And everything gets very thematically dissonant. I'd rather have those core mechanisms and then let the theme inform whatever those uh, supporting mechanisms might be. So, for instance, like the gold mechanism in Coloma, it's like, well, to me, it makes sense that gold is flooding in the rivers and it comes up and down the more people have it the price of it is very volatile based on yeah what's going on because there was times in the gold rush where uh so many people had so much gold that uh getting laundry done as a service someplace cost more than just buying the new britches and so people stopped getting their you know stuff done and they'd have to come up with like a wheelbarrow of gold just to like get the most basic thing like breakfast or something so the economy just at times it was extremely inflated and weird. And then there was at times where mm-hmm. it was, you know, nothing. It's, you, know, you, you go bust, whatever else. So that volatility um, was interesting to me. And that, that led into that mechanism there. And even the idea of like some of the old West saying, it's like, you know, uh, Coloma or bust, you know, so people head out West and they were going to put everything they had into this, this boom town and try mm-hmm. to make it rich there or risk absolutely getting nothing because somebody else beat you to the spot where it was. And it's kind of this um, push and pull. And so a lot of things kind of work there. And with the expansion, even like some of the stuff um, I, I, you know, live in the Sierras and one of the things I really love out there is like the rivers and uh, there's these incredible waterfalls and all these different spots up there and the rivers in the core game, were a little underwhelming. We could just put it that way. It's just like a little tile. It's got a river on it. You put it on your player board and it unlocks yeah. something. All the rivers don't actually do anything special. They just, it's just an unlock your player board. And I thought, hey, what if I, you know, expand the size of these things and the rivers, you know, now become waterfall spots and they actually have a unique bonus. And then what if you can actually travel to these little things and create like a little route that allows you to go and experience these rivers and waterfalls in different ways and then unlock some stuff. And those basins around the waterfalls tend to be a place where gold would deposit or, you know, water was nice and fresh, whatever it is. They're kind of just like these attractive spots. And um, so I wanted to showcase those a little bit. And one of the little inspirations for that track was from one of my favorite games, um, Russian Railroads. At the bottom of the Russian Railroads board, you got this little thing where you kind of move your little technology wrench or spanner along this little track and unlock little bonuses. Mm -hmm. What if we tried something like that with the existing player boards and then these new rivers that are now waterfalls and the bridges that go on top and then also create some branching paths that you can say, you know, go down here. It's faster. It's a shortcut, but there's a rattlesnake. So you might end up where we get dysentery down there. But if you take the long path and you actually survey the river and put the pieces in that spot, you can actually get these big rewards. And so you kind of go at different tempos 
And uh, then the driver of that thing is busting again. So it's one of those things where uh, it's not like, hey, I'm going to go place my guy in the work replacement spot that's just going to let me go explore this thing. It's it's the consolation prize in a sense. So if you build an engine of cards that also benefits from busting and then you've got your waterfalls plugged in and all this and you go and you end up busting because you go to the same spot as all the other pioneers, you get to advance everything yeah. that's got that criteria. So your waterfall advances, you unlock a bonus, your cards advance, they mature, and you get these big kind of like back-end combo turns based on that. So um, so that, you know, long story short, that the my love of waterfalls and stuff in the Sierras and the Gold Rush era kind of inspired <laughs> why that whole board is over there and why why it is dangerous because there's rattlesnakes and stuff out there and it's true. You know, you go out in the rivers and you go swimming and all of a sudden there's a rattler out there and you're like, ooh, let's take the other trail. <laughs> so it's all kind of baked into it. Do you, do you then, um, do you kind of do any kind of historical kind of fact checking then? Because I, I, I know it sounds strange, but it's like, if you're kind of doing kind of frontier towns, I think there's enough, there's enough kind of TV shows and films and books that you can look at to kind of get a general just. But you also kind of try and do a little bit of checking just to say, well, did this kind of happen? And does it also kind of maybe have an effect on how you kind of handle kind of mechanics and stuff like that as well? Mm-hmm. Like a real simple one is when the artist came back with the original board for Coloma, um, he put a bunch of saguaro cactuses on it because it's like old, you know, Western town, bang, bang, shoot them up. And there's cactuses everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there yeah. are no saguaro cactuses in this part of Northern California. So I said, you know, as cool as that looks, I love cactuses personally. <laughs> it just, there are no cactuses in Coloma. You, you got to have to paint those out. There's other things where he put like Easter egg of like market, uh, sorry, uh, the guys from uh, Back to the Future. Um, Marty yeah. and Doc are in there. It's like, well, those yeah. can stay. That makes sense because it's funny, but no cactuses, right? So there's certain old things like that <laughs> um, where I check up on it. And um, there's there's uh, little details, like as far as there's a Native American player uh, character that you can play in there. And the uh, tribe that was most prominent in that area was the Maidu um, tribe. So I just asked the artist, hey, can you put the headdress of the, you know, the Maidu garb yeah. on this character just so it didn't look like suddenly there's like you know the typical patchy thing or whatever else like that's like yeah you know that would just be like phoning it in so just little details like that but again we didn't like it really pedantic about you know you can't have wolverine hidden in the cover of the the box cover well in fact he is in there yeah so there's some stuff that's really kind of silly and splashy and we um loosen up the reins on it and then other things we pay a little more um attention to and then sometimes there's like kind of oddball things that um inspire something so in the expansion they just actually re- uh, announced one of the stretch goals is this cable car tram and it's like what so believe right. it or not like across the south fork of the american river there was this lumber mill on one side of the canyon and there's a place where they were getting a lot of lumber on the other side and there's this really really deep canyon between and these crazy pioneers actually just strung cables across the whole thing and had this little tram that would carry logs across and the cowboys would ride across on this thing and there's some very old photographs of this thing actually still is in operation into the early 20th century and it's like you just see these like cowboys riding logs across this like 800 foot drop into this canyon across this old cable car it's like that's crazy and so i was thinking i was like can we put that in the game somehow and so this expansion (laughs) this whole module where instead of putting bridges there you put this old cable car across and it has a different scoring criteria so it's like you'll you'll see in the expanded game that yeah you got your bridges and then this canyon has got this little cables and there's a little cable car full of lumber and cowboys you know dangling out 
Um, that normally wouldn't fall into the lexicon of like, hey, let's make a Western game. It's like, and there's going to be cable cars dangling across a canyon. I can imagine the kind of the BGG comments, kind of people yeah. going, "This isn't, this isn't historically accurate," and it's yeah. almost like you're going to have to kind of include some kind of um, pamphlet inside the production copy to say, "Hey, you, I know you've seen cable cars. I know you're about to go and comment on it, but before you do, here's the picture of what we're kind of talking about." It's almost like you've got to got to to kind of educate it. It's- it's like almost like what Fort Fort Circle uh, Games do with their games, like Votes for Women, <laughs> the shows of Tripoli, where they kind of put an insert into the historical context behind certain, you know, certain mechanics of the game. You're gonna have to put a put a pamphlet in New Prospects to say, yeah, you might have noticed a cable car in there, but actually, you know, that that kind of that kind of kind of did exist. Um, was was game design something you always wanted to do? Or was it something you kind of ended, kind of fell into, and then kind of went, oh, "Well, people are giving me money. Might as well keep going." <laughs> I think I'm. I got some cost fallacy about the money part. I'm still just scraping, scraping by trying to be a full time game designer. But um, mm-hmm. historically, uh, I was kind of homeschooled under a rock and didn't get a you know the usual proper education or go to college and stuff and then I ended up um, mm-hmm. studying private music with a retired um, Hollywood Union uh, musician who's a composer and arranger that happened to have retired in the small town I grew up in so I studied wow. music under him and kind of um, learned a bunch of neat stuff that you know you don't always learn in colleges and all that and then I took that and got into uh, teaching music privately and mm-hmm. uh, since I didn't have you know a degree in anything I was just teaching a lot of private lessons on either music theory or guitar bass and I preferred instruments and, and retail and guitar shops record stores uh, toy stores that kind of thing so I was running an art gallery since I was into art and that sort of thing and doing music and venue stuff so I was kind of doing like a lot of like artsy music hipster stuff and I got introduced to Euro games in my uh, my 20s and that yeah. was really kind of like the thing that got me into gaming i didn't have a big background in like rpgs or even video games or magic or um pokemon or anything it was kind of like yeah i just wasn't into that stuff i was into other things and somehow carcassonne and a few of the euro games sparked my imagination because i felt like there's um there's kind of a little bit of creativity in it like when you build a carcassonne map you're actually just building this big beautiful thing and you're putting little meeples on it all the little ornaments you know put the pig in this farm and all these other little things Mm -hmm. um it got me kind of excited. I, I really enjoyed it. It just felt like a fun activity and it was also compelling strategically and it didn't feel as um, regimented as things like chess and go where it's like, you know, there's some, you know, little kid that goes to chess camp every summer and you're just going to whip the pants off you and you're always, it's, it just didn't have that same kind of thing. It's like, Hey, this is relatively new. And, and, you know, now there's, ch- you know, Carcassonne champions and all that. But at the time it felt like, this is inviting. You can just go in here and play this game and it's strategic, but there's a little bit of randomness and luck and it's aesthetically pleasing. And so I started collecting and playing these games and I did not actually intend to design games. And I built up a collection, hosted game nights. <laughs> and I was known as the nerd herder as I'd bring people around to play these Euro games that I would source from like Games of Berkeley and these other places that would import the, the German style games. And be like, hey, I heard there's this, you know, this Carcassonne or this Puerto Rico or this other game. We got to try it out. And this race for the galaxy. Oh my gosh, there's so many icons. Can you figure this out? And getting used to that sort of stuff. And it wasn't really until 
2012, 13 that I took a stab at creating my own game, and that's been 10 years now. So um, it's been kind of a bumpy but ride. You, actually, get, yeah. you get a sound though, like you kind of went out, you had a kind of a skin full of alcohol, and then you woke up the next morning and you kind of looked over at the <laughs> side of the bed and went, Oh my goodness, I've just gone ahead and designed a game. Oh my goodness, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, when you say music, because you can't talk about music and, and just kind of go, oh, yeah, music. Um, were you a guitarist? Were you a singer? Were you, a, you know, what kind of music were you? Was it all a mixture of things that you were kind of playing and teaching? Um, so, yeah, so I studied uh, jazz uh, improvisation and composition wow. specifically. So it was so it's, it was kind of like a split between, you know, like we're used to hearing about, oh, Meritrash versus Euro games. It's kind of like this whole like yeah. jazz theory versus classical theory and the truth is like we know that there's a lot of hybridization where those things cross over a lot but i was kind of trained in the jazz um standpoint and i found that um it led to a lot of other types of contemporary music that were also partially improv based which which could be like old school country where it's you hear all those like fiddle solos and lap steel solos and Mm. guitar solos it's like those are improvised sections and they had the nashville number system where there's all these chords being kind of improvised in the studio and everybody had to be on their a-game and so the idea of structured improvisation a lot of times is just reserved for oh it's jazz theory um but it actually leaks into a lot of things and even a lot of great like psychedelic rock band stuff or jam bands. It's just like there's there's scales and rules and chords and ways to put stuff together to create fresh music without excessive rehearsal. And each time you play the song, it feels fresh and is enjoyable to play. So I really um, was fascinated with the kind of the rules that would let you sound good without playing a whole bunch of bad notes with a bunch of other people following similar rules while still having a personal expression versus the um, very strict compositional sort of thing with classical where it's like, all right, we all arrange these things exactly and you rehearse it and you perfect it and put feeling into it, but you're not really allowed to change the notes or the duration of the notes that much. Um, Everybody sometimes sat down in front of a piano and went, how hard can this be? (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's that hard. Uh, Okay. Um, But what did you, what did you play then? So um, primarily guitar and bass. I play the guitar, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, and then the bass. I play the upright bass and the um, electric bass both, and I switch between them. So a lot of times the stuff I'm doing now, I'll actually have like a rack of bass and guitar nearby each other, and I'll switch between the two if um, I'm doing solo stuff because I'll actually loop and play bass lines, and I'll play guitar lines, and I'll put chords down, and then switch between things, kind of like a little one-man band thing since... um, I don't have a current working band that I'm playing with right now. I would love to start a new band and probably do some like 60 style surf music would be my next endeavor. I think right now, really? since, <laughs> cause that stuff's a ton of fun to play too. Uh, but yeah, a lot, a lot of instrumental stuff. So is that like, uh, I mean, everybody talks about kind of like, Oh, that's what Ed Sheeran does. He just gets up there and he just has like a guitar loop and then he has a bass loop and then he does like a vocal loop and stuff like that. So is that kind of what you're talking about? You kind of record, you record a piece and have it looping and then you put a second layer on top of it and have the whole thing looping. So you record like the baseline first of all and just have that kind of on a, a longer loop and then add mm-hmm. the guitar and kind of like on top of that. Is that kind of like how you'd be doing it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got a little loop station. They're, they're, they've become a lot easier to use and more affordable. So they have, you know, quantizers, ultra machine, whatever, and then you can lay down whether you play some chords first and add a baseline or whatever else. And typically you can add a track or two and then delete a track or two and kind of build it up and break it down as you go through. And uh, they're not 
the stuff I do isn't like highly structured. That's like I've you know I've got this thing where it's like first I play this lick and then I play that lick and then I look cool for a while and then I play the next yeah. lick and then I it's it's more organic. Where I've even done some stuff at shows where um, I'll ask the audience say, "Hey, uh, you." pick out a note. Do you know any musical notes? And they'll be like, see, okay. And what about you? And then, and then they'll always make up some like, uh, you know, E sharp minor. I'm like, well, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll do F, F minor. Right, that works. And, um, then I'll take those notes and I'll kind of like play onto the loop, the note that one person says, and I'll play the other one. And even if it's a very like dissonant pairing, whatever else, uh, I can use yeah. the rest of music theory to actually like do the spoonful of sugar thing and create, um, stuff that makes sense out of that and they'll be like oh my gosh cool so it's kind of proves that you know it's fresh and then the other half it's kind of a fun challenge for me to think about how to take two or three different notes from the audience or chords and merge them together into something that's coherent okay so question right here's the mm -hmm. big question right and i want it i want an honest an honest answer from you okay where's the music game <laughs> So, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, honestly, I mean, you've literally to me. described to me, you've literally described to me, oh yeah, so you put, you're putting your first level of bass down and then on top of it, you've got to put kind of like, you've got to then play cards that kind of match with a synergy. And if they don't match, then you get like a worse score. I mean, you sound like you've got some kind of <laughs> Euro track kind of game where you build up kind of different layers of notes and then you can use your... You can use your musicality to bring in kind of more instruments. I mean, this is what this is sounding like to me. And there you are, mucking about with a Wild West, Mr. Canton. What's <laughs> yeah. going on? So I, I actually think that a music game is a very, very hard thing to pull off. Um, and it's it's been brought up to me quite a few times. Like, they're out there. It's like, um, there's a new game coming out called The Gig. And it's got this, like, cool 1960s aesthetic yeah. and this you know dice you know rolling kind of thing and then there's games where it's like a battle of the bands kind of thing i have a friend that's got one that's going to be coming out pretty soon it's about you know kids in the 80s getting all their guitars and equipment together and playing these little dive bars and kind of building up their fan base and that sort of thing yeah but i feel like the ones that are actually trying to do something with music music the one missing ingredient that really doesn't work uh, is the fact that just nothing sound no sound doesn't come out of board games naturally even a race car game it's like even though it's really really slow and you're just moving around this track with a little car and it's not really like zooming in real time or anything like that it's still going around the track it's doing what race cars do you make, and economic you games make noises music. though you make you make noises you make noises you gotta make the noises you gotta make noises imagine how many people bought heat and I reckon, right, the percentage of people <laughs> that also, kind of like as they're playing Heat, we're going... <laughs> they better. Like that. At the same they time, better. I reckon that was really, really high. I've got a solution for your problem then, okay? Yeah. Okay. QR codes on the cards that you, log, that you log into an app. Exactly. So I think that's... If there's going to be a really good like music music game it shouldn't require music mm. theory where it's like hey put the treble clef here and put the naturals and sharper flats and then play it and you know put it into a midi playback it's like we can't trust yeah. that that's going to work but uh what you're talking about makes sense that if there's something scannable whether it's qr code or stanza of music yeah. or something that you could plug in and with you know like basically even my basic understanding of music theory it'd be very easy to actually put things together in a way that um will inevitably sound good, even if it were layered. They have certain little tricks and knowing how to do that. So um, so that could be something where it's, 
I think maybe doable with, with that. Now we're going to get some pushback going like, Hey, you know, I don't like app assisted games. Is this music actually necessary? Uh, it would be like, Hey, everybody vote on the coolest sounding song. No, it might be a thing where it is a victory point game. It is mechanistic, but ultimately yeah. it would be nice to sit here and like hear your song being played back and actually have it sound coherent, not just like, you know, a, a salad of weird notes that make no sense together. So I think it's possible um, if it were done that way. It's it would take something right. I would need to work very closely with a very good you know app developer uh, to make sure that everything worked out right and have enough you know uh, backing from you know say a publisher to put behind that. I wouldn't go out of my way like I normally do. Oh, oh no, no, no yeah. Prototype on yeah. spec and just do this. I'm not going to hire an app developer just to be like, hey, yeah. would you make this prototype no. for me? And then I'm going to go pitch it. No. It would need to be part of like a bigger project that got commissioned, I think. So coming in Kickstarter 2024, <laughs> Johnny Johnny Pack and Seth Lafair Games is the sounds of Gloomhaven. <laughs> you know what? It might happen. I know <laughs> these guys. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, would, get, I mean, that's it. I, I just, as I say, I've just spoken to Ross Thompson not too long ago. I mean, I can... I can email him and say, look, you're just doing your festival and I'm listening to your festival. I ain't hearing no music. You have a big campaign, but all I'm hearing is the sound of change and I'm not hearing the sound of kind of, you know, the Gloomhaven flute. That's right. And you know the vice president, um, Price Price Johnson, the vice president of Cliff Affair, is also uh, kind of local to me. And he's actually been a singer in rock bands for as long as I know. He's got this really nice, like, high tenor voice. He does, uh, you know, cover bands, all that kind of thing. So I think there's a sweet spot there. So maybe next episode, Price is like, hey, my man. I I think we're on to something. And I think we should pitch it. You know, once Col- obviously Coloma's funded and it's going to be there, but I mean, it sounds to me like we need to be kind of going on. Um, am I right in saying that you were, you kind of put your head above the parapet and kind of said, okay, this is actually how much I've made as a board game designer in terms of money? Uh, yeah, I've I, I posted some stuff. So on Twitter, there's been this... Um trend of designers kind of showing their their earnings and uh, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure actually where that started but you know I'm fine with it it was, it was definitely enlightening to see some other designers going like oh wow you actually make money doing this <laughs> so because um, it feels like uh, you know a lot of people side hustle or something that they do just for the love of it but then there are full-time designers and then you've got your people who've made some mega hits and you know just by doing simple math that they've made you know, over a million dollars off of one game alone if it goes really, really big like that. So the upward potential is there. But that joke when you get into game design, it's like, hey, when you make the next Monopoly, you know, don't forget about me. Send me a postcard. Ha ha. I'll say I know you went. Yeah, and then, yeah. you know, truth comes out to you and you tell them what kind of royalties they actually get and how much stuff has to sell and sell through and, you know, all this other end of it. And you just go, are you even making minimum wage? You go, <laughs> not usually um for the no. amount of hours <laughs> exactly so, but the exactly. potential is there that you know if you do knock one out of the park it will make up the difference where it's like you know for for the wingspans and gloomhaves and things like that yeah they're they're substantial um so as far as what i've done is a 
designer and a developer, they're kind of sometimes overlap and sometimes they don't. The developer tends to be something where I will do a, um, a flat fee particular project or a small percent of uh, a one-time small percent of a campaign or an hourly thing if it's ongoing to or a consultant thing where it's just like, hey, you know, X amount, you know, spend mm. one hour, we sit down and look at it. Uh, that's that's one source of income, and uh, I kind of got into that because the royalty games is it's very slow. So it's like you think of a game, you design the game, you pitch the game, it goes into crowdfunding, it gets into production, it goes six months overseas, it goes into distribution, it sells, and then you know the company that is selling it pays out you know quarterly at best, sometimes yearly. You know <laughs> December yeah. thirty to get an invoice for something so sometimes when you design a game and by the time you get paid anything for it contingent on it being cons- successful um one of the weird little metaphors is like sometimes that's a two or three year process so you, if you thought about it in other things that take a number of years you could think like sometimes the entire presidency in the united states will take that long <laughs> or somebody yeah. will meet somebody on tinder get married have children those those kids will learn to walk and talk by the time your game comes out and you get paid for it so it's, it makes you really learn to hold your breath for these long periods of time and become kind of agnostic about how much you're actually going to make on the back end of that thing because you can't really know until it sells. And if it's just a one print run thing, you have to start over and start a new game. If it sells multiple print runs, you go, okay, this is going to have a longer tail on it and still maybe diminishing mm. returns. Um, mm. And then you're always looking at, you know, are you going to get that big smash hit that's going to give have some gonzo kickstarter and you get your you know your chunk from the kickstarter enough to carry over for the next you know however many years well it gives you time to create your next crop of games or expansions in order to support that success yeah and i think one of the things i think that people forget is um they go, oh, well, these designers are making lots and lots of money they must be and it's like well no because the retail price <laughs> The retail price is like normally the retail price is kind of like the co- is is there's a cost price in there, so the designer isn't even getting the whole retail price. In fact, they're usually not getting anything of the cost price. In fact, they're usually not getting a huge amount of that anyway. So even like on a like a sixty dollar game, you know, if they're going for retail and that game is like costing forty dollars then, you know, that's instantly then. And then it's in, well, okay, it's 25 to manufacture or it's 15 to manufacture because we managed to do a five, you know, a 3,000 unit print run instead of a 1,000 unit print run. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, that it's kind of economies of scale. So a designer yeah. can end up getting kind of next to, next to very small per unit, which is sometimes it's a case that you sign up for a kind of a, a, kind of a fee. And being mm-hmm. involved in kind of, getting involved in kind of, I'm getting kind of more involved in a business point of view from kind of cost prices for games and how much they actually are. And it's like, I think there's people that run very, very successful dreams mm-hmm. as opposed to people running, running very successful businesses. I think there's a lot of people that wash their face when they run a Kickstarter. I don't think there's many people that, I don't think there's many people that kind of run a very successful Kickstarter and then that's it, they're doing a career out of it. 
um, Kickstarter seems to be, you can get some people, I, I have seen businesses that have done like six figures on Kickstarter and they do one game and that's it. You never, you never hear from them again mm-hmm. because in the background, because they're great at the design side of things, but when it comes to the business side of things, it's like we didn't realize it was all this business stuff to take care of. And then it's like, they've not gotten out afterwards. So it's like, yeah, I developed this Kickstarter, this game I developed for six years and it's out there and people are playing it. But I didn't know what I was meant to do once I successfully funded as well. And I think there's this misnomer that um, board game industry, because there's certain parts of it that make lots and lots of money, and there's certain part there's certain companies that have like continual evergreen titles. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about I mean, you mentioned Wingspan and it sold, was it almost it must be almost like I think it's about one point six million copies or something like that. Yeah, but I think last last I, I checked, it was one one point seven, one point eight, something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a lot. <laughs> but I don't think Red Rising sold that many copies. You know, as many copies. Right. I right. mean, I, I don't know if Scythe sold as as many copies. So even somebody like you know Stonemaier Games, yes, they have evergreen and they they've built up a catalog and they do have kind of like evergreen games that will continue to sell. But um. I don't think it's I don't think it's like design a board game, stick it on Kickstarter, have a successful Kickstarter, and that's you kind of sort it out. But I think there's a lot of people that kind of think that, and they think that Kickstarter people are made of money, <laughs> which is a strange, yeah. which is a kind of a strange, a kind of a strange situation to to kind of be to kind of to kind of be in. Um, with you. <clears throat> I mean, Coloma's going to be out there and the expansion's going to be out there and people are going to kind of get their hands on it. Do you have, like, have you got kind of like a a two, three-year plan of, right, this is the next game, this is the next game, this is the next game, or are you one of these people that's kind of maybe developing four or five games at once and seeing which one is you're going to run with? Or Um, eight, (laughs) twelve? Last time I checked. There's a notebook, Johnny, isn't there? (laughs) <laughs> Last time I checked, I was I, I was working on over twenty games, and I think I'm working on <laughs> roughly twenty four projects, game projects right now, wow. in various stages. And some of those, if you unpack them, are pretty extensive. Where it's like, yeah, I'm working on say Unconscious Mind right now, we're finishing development, mm-hmm. but I'm also working on the expansion. I'm also working on the solo mode. I'm also working on a whole bunch of modules and Kickstarter stuff that came out with it. And so, in a sense, it's like that one game. I'm building a solo mode for which is kind of like designing its own own game for that too so it's a lot yeah. even in a single title like that um when they're, when they're content rich and then there's other ones where uh you know air quotes i'm still working on it might be like sweet mess where it's like okay well the development and design parts done but we're getting factory samples back to make sure that the vacuum yeah. trays fit properly and things like that so there's some tales that i'm still working on that intermittently um, mm-hmm. as far as those go. So, you know, counting things like that. So if we looked at in various stages all the way down to, uh, yeah, we just shook hands or signed a contract to start working on a commission piece. Well, you know, there's preliminary work being done on that, but you know, it's not taking up the majority of my days at this point. So across the spectrum, it's like, yeah, I'm working on over 20 games, uh, currently, mm-hmm. as far as like highly focused stuff, it might be three, four, five games at once, and it tends to be the squeakiest wheel that's going to get the oil. So, like, um, Coloma content is like, yeah, I've been working really hard to make sure that the campaign stuff is ready, and then yeah. also rolling out stuff for um, the stretch goals and making sure that those work, and 
talking with you know, Will the Hungry Gamer, make sure that the solo uh, mode is going well and being tested and that that's all kind of coming together. And then doing some stuff that we'll be doing in post, which is making a really, you know, nice rule book, um, giving the graphics, you know, facelift, whatever it needs to kind of get um, get done, right? So that, that one's primary focus and conscious mind is with Fantasia is a big focus right now because uh, we want to get that out to backers as soon as possible, but also make it the absolute best product we can. Uh, yeah. And there's stuff that's kind of kicked way out in the future where um, one cat that's been let out of the bag is that Fantasia got the rights to Wolfgang Kramer's uh, Coliseum, which used to be a Days of Wonder game. It's one of my favorite games. I was really, really excited that the license was available. And so we get to do yeah. like a deluxe new version of that and make some little um, tweaks and modules and things for that. So it's cool to basically be emailing back and forth with um, him and then getting some artwork from the Micho who's doing the artwork and Ian O'Toole's doing the um, art uh, the art direction on that. And so kind of corresponding like, hey, if we redesigned the map to be like this, is there enough room for the players' uh, coliseums to expand this way and that way? And you know, being very familiar mm. with the gameplay myself, I'm able to look at, yes, this looks cool, but it also needs to be functional and find that medium ground. So intermittently like working on something like that is part of um what i'm doing and so am i the designer of that game no but i'm helping develop and be the glue between the designer and the graphic designer and the artist to make sure that the gameplay stuff still really resonates well and then we've got people sourcing you know blinging it out what, what can we add to make this really deluxe or make this as good yeah, as yeah, yeah. your version much better so just being involved in that project um it's oh, um, it's yeah. interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned Wolfgang Kramer because, and the reason I kind of looked to the side there, and nobody, you can't, because this is audio. So everybody's mm -hmm. going, this doesn't make any sense. But I looked to the side because I've got a copy of Big Boss. Oh by yeah, Wolfgang Kramer. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, oh, yeah. it's yeah. Fun, it's uh, it's one of Funko um, Funko Game Prospero Hall. It's one of their recent things. So I'm wondering if Wolfgang's just going about kind of saying, "Do you want a game?" Do you want to work on this game? Do you want to work on this game? Do you want to, if it's going to go through a thing of I'm handing out all my IPs like sweeties to hungry children to see who wants to kind of kind of catch them on. So are you getting so some of your stuff are you kind of being kind of working almost like as a consultant, a kind of a developer consultant yeah. for some of these companies as well? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially especially for Fantasia at this point. I was doing it more freelance for a bunch of companies, helping out with like Elf Creek and Alley Cat Games and more stuff with Final Frontier and uh, Dranda Games. So I was staying busy, you know, I kind of spread with that, but I'm, I'm consolidating. What stuff did you do for Alley Cat Games? Sorry. Oh, so Alley Cat, uh, I worked on Aborea, which is was on Kickstarter last uh -huh. year. It's got that really cool, splashy fantasy animal kind awesome. of artwork. It's really, really cool looking. And that's Beautiful new looking now. game. I think so, yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's the new designer, Danny Garcia, who's also has a game coming out very soon from Board and Dice called Barcelona. It's a Euro game, looks really cool. And uh, he's he's an upcoming designer from Spain. He's really, really good at what he does. And it's a pleasure to work with him. Am I right, am I right in saying that they've got about three or four games across different places all kind of in the in the fire? I think their their name has gone from nowhere to all of a sudden kind of being yeah a little yeah, bit far he's and got, wide at the he's moment got quite a few things signed and yeah so i i think it's one of those things like once these all actually start coming out in stores and stuff it's suddenly be like where does yeah. this guy come from because he's got 
just good games popping <laughs> out, and he's had this back catalog. Uh, he works really quickly too, which is nice. Um, I've seen him you know, feed him an idea, and he comes back a couple days later, and it's really well fleshed out and all that. So he's just very, very dedicated to his craft, which is awesome. I hate him already. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, it's like and there are people like there you could just say right okay so so i'll tell you what it's the type of game they go yeah well you need to do this 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 and you're just like yeah i hope you get to the top of the stairs and realize you aren't at the top of the stairs and you do that extra stomp step and everybody <laughs> and somebody who's important to you in your life sees you and you're embarrassed forever doing this top stompy stop at the top of the step so there you go um <laughs> <laughs> I've, done, like, I've done it myself I've started like going out of rooms and going into other rooms and going what am I in this room for what am I what am I, what, what am I, what am I even what am I, like tonight right okay I'm moving some games downstairs right and I must have gone upstairs like four times to bring down the same game and I managed to bring down do you know how many times I managed to bring the game down none I'm, it's still up there it's still. I was gonna bring oath down. I was gonna bring oath downstairs and and unpack it and look at it and kind of organize it further and stuff like that. But no, I came down with like uh, Indiana Jones: Sands of Adventure and uh, Excavation Earth and uh, the new one of the Lords of the Rings games. And I've got a big boss there as well. And I've not got oath. Why have I not got oath? Because I'm old, Johnny. You know. <laughs> Because I'm, you're lucky. You're actually speaking to me tonight, and I've got like I've got trousers on, and that's all I'm going to say to you. You know, and I and I've even had a coffee. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, going back, let's do the circle. The circle. The circle is complete. Um, what is the entrance fee for Coloma New Prospects? If you want to go ahead and back the project, how much is it going to cost you to get in the door? And if you don't know, I've got it right here. Well, you <laughs> click, click, click. How much am I charging people for the games? <laughs> I could tell you now that the Coloma Duck, the Coloma, the Coloma Deluxe Edition, which is one physical copy of the Coloma Standard Edition with a deluxe upgrade pack with all the pickleball unlocked scratch goals, is seventy nine dollars, which is about I don't know sixty six pounds or something. If you want just the new Prospects expansion by the art, the art by the Miko that we forget because they do some stunning art is twenty nine dollars, and if you want to go for the mother, the mother load pledge, that's the one. Who came? Who came up with that? Was that you? Because it's absolutely <laughs> shockingly bad, <laughs> terrible, bad form. It is one hundred and fifty nine dollars, which is roughly. With our exchange rate, it's roughly about $147.73. So there you Ooh. go. Um, have I missed anything? I don't know if I have. Well, that comes with the Fistful Meeples the... and the Fistful Meeples expansion. So you're actually getting two games and two expansions and the big box and all the deluxe game trace stuff with that. So that's it's a lot of content. And a cuddly and... toy and a cuddly toy and an espresso machine <laughs> and Johnny's undying love as well. That comes with Big and his own. If you send him a message, he will send you a five-minute ringtone using the jazz flute 
that you can add <laughs> to your phone as well. So that's nice. I'm just adding in stuff that you have to do. Oh, you've got the Pioneer Pledge, which is a physical copy, a deluxe upgrade in the Coloma New Prospects expansion, which is $108 or £100, roughly. And what we'll do is we'll make sure we put all these in. We'll not. We'll put a link to the campaign. I'm not writing this all out. My goodness, I'm lazy and stupid. And we'll put a link to the campaign in the show notes so we've got notes to show. If people have listened along tonight, Johnny, and they've went, he sounds interesting. How do I find him? Where do you exist on the internet webs? Uh, I've got johnnypack.com, so J-O-N-N-Y-P-A-C.com. It's just got some design mm-hmm. stuff. I'm on BGG, and I'm an active user on there, so I'm always answering rules questions and things like that, or it can be geek mailed. I do have a Twitter mm-hmm. account. Uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of Twitter, and a lot of people aren't, but I have it there just for you know, tweeting stuff about games. But I'll, I'll answer direct messages on there as well. So I'm pretty easy to get hold of. Uh, it's, it's not hard, and I'm pretty responsive, so I usually get back to people within a day or two. Awesome. And as I say, yeah. we'll put all the links in the show notes so that we've got notes to show. If you want to keep an eye on what we're up to, go to the internet webs and search for We're Not Wizards, and you'll find us in all these wonderful different places where they set up stuff on hosting and then people come along and have fun and parties and stuff like that um we're posting stuff on bgg so if you want to read our reviews you can read them on bgg if you're listening along tonight and you're listening along on spotify then please consider dropping us a rating or review on spotify and if you are going to be giving us a rating or review on spotify remember not to give us 10 stars because it makes me big headed but don't give me one star because it makes me cry give me something (laughs) in the middle like a five because it's average i'm just a little bit average but the person who's not been average tonight is rather wonderful, rather fantastic. <laughs> he's the man of the hour. He's got the bass line. He's got your tempo. But most of all, he's got your new prospects. It's Mr. Johnny Pack, Captain. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for coming along, sir. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, there's only two more things to do. The... F- <laughs> The first thing to do is to remember that we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Johnny? No, no, no. Are we wizards, Johnny? Mm -hmm. You're definitely not. Definitely not. And the other thing is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from Johnny. Say goodbye, Johnny. Bye. And it's a goodbye from you. Remember, stay safe, roll sixes, and make something awful. But also, get yourself onto some Coloma runs dry like the river. But until the next time, goodbye. A wizard is never linked. Is he early? He arrives precisely when he means to.